the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Bill Kiefer. Bill is a former U.S. Army officer with over a decade of active duty service. He is also a human resource and talent management executive with over two decades of senior leadership experience in large, complex, and global companies. Throughout his career, he has coached and advised military veterans to successfully transition from their military career to the civilian commercial work world. Having been that veteran who made the transition, he is passionate about helping other veterans succeed. The breadth and depth of Bill's experience uniquely enables him to advise veterans, non-veterans, teams, and organizations to successfully navigate change, recognize the realities of their circumstance, and develop and execute plans that improve performance and achieve planned objectives. In this episode, we discuss your own career and your success, the importance of passion aligned with values, and while you may own your success, no one makes it alone. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So Bill, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? I got to make it on my own. That doesn't mean I have to be lonely. It means I got to make it on my own and I've got to be able to use the resources around me to my benefit and not to the detriment of anything else, but to use the resources around me to make things happen that I need to happen. Yep, that's excellent. So building off that, going into some of the topics we said we would talk about, I think what you just noted lends nicely to talking about your own career and your own success. One of the things that I'd like you to highlight is what do you actually mean by having ownership of your success? Yeah, it's really an interesting point, and I love the that you brought this up uh, on this call. And because so many people think that their career and their success is something other than their responsibility, uh, you know, nobody cares more about your career success than you do. There are other people out there, managers, businesses, families, customers, clients, uh, staff support, and so on and so forth. But nobody cares more about your career than you. And that means that you've got to start by figuring out what success looks like from a career standpoint for you. Now, there's a lot of different ways to get to success, and everybody defines success on their own. But if you can't define what success looks like to me, who owns it doesn't matter. So you have to define success, and then you have to understand that it's your job to get from wherever you are to whatever that success is. That's really good. So my thoughts around this and just something that popped into my mind when you were talking is, you know, when somebody is trying to redefine the landscape for themselves, here I'm thinking about something that we both share in common. We volunteer from time to time for the Honor Foundation. 
where we are working with what's called fellows, right? These are soldiers that are transitioning from military career into the civilian world. And for a lot of them initially, they might be thinking, well, the only thing that I can do in the civilian world is probably going to resemble in some way what I did in the military. But that's not the case. And that's one of the things we try to work with them on and for them to realize that you know, they need to find a passion, they need to find something that they can do and be inspired to do now that they're no longer in the military. So that really is, you know, speaking beyond something that they've done for a very long time. And I guess because this is kind of a new adventure for them, they have to redefine what success now means for them. But at the same time, they're going to have to find out what that actually is, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, defining success for you is one of the hardest challenges a human being can have. Defining success for you professionally can even be harder. And it's even harder if you come from a long career of a very specified type. So, for example, the folks that uh, we work with in the Honor Foundation, fantastic people, uh, highly trained, highly skilled, highly capable. They know what they know. They know it well. They can execute well. They develop well. They do all kinds of great things. But in some cases, even though they're so successful and so capable, they don't know what exists outside that world. So let's say you get to the end of your journey in your military career, either by choice or, by, uh, or not by choice, whatever that circumstance is. Something's next. So what's that something? And many times people look at what are the possible landing places as opposed to where do I want to land? It's just different things, you know. My LZ uh, opportunities may be here, here, or here, but if I need to be over there, they're not good LZs. So where do I need to be? And understanding how to do that requires some serious introspection, some serious self-awareness, and some serious thought about not who I've been, but where do I want to land? And it's an entirely different question. So it's really speaking to you know what you want to become, right? Because I think for a lot of people so often, I know that I felt this myself, and partly because I was diagnosed with a whole bunch of injuries, which then put me in a position where I had to start thinking about redefining how I was going to move forward. And when you're going into that change, when you're going into to the unknown, so to speak, right, that can be a scary proposition, especially when you're moving away from something that has paid your bills, and now all of a sudden you have to go at something completely brand new and you're not entirely sure how that's going to pan out. Yeah, you know, a lot of times folks will say, follow your passion. And that's important. But I always say you got to be pragmatic when you follow your passion. You know, what I want to do and what I aspire to and what I dream to be, I will never be a, a, a rock star guitarist. I, it's not me. Pragmatically, that's just not going to happen. My passion, I love music. I love the guitar. I'd love to be able to play. I can't do it. Uh, for a lot of reasons. I'm just not that skilled. So what are we going to do as individuals to not try to look back on what did we do? What are we going to look forward to say, what do I have to do? Sometimes you got to be pregnant. I got bills I got to pay. You know, I, I just got, I got to make the mortgage. I got to make the rent, whatever it is. And you have to make some pragmatic decisions. Okay. Um, it's all parts of a journey. It's not necessarily the end of the journey. So make some pragmatic decisions. Hey, take real um, critical stock 
of what you're bringing to the party. When I coach folks individually, I always start with who are you and what do you bring into the party? Okay. The good, the bad, the ugly, the needs, the wants, the capabilities, the shortfalls. And that is oftentimes a harder step than how do I build a resume or where do I go or how do I talk to new people? How do I network? Because it really takes some objective looking at who I am. And now for the first time, likely in our professional career, we have the responsibility to make decisions that oftentimes were made for us. You know, if you're in the military, you start off as an E1 and O1, you know, whatever your rank was, and you know, two is after one and three is after two. And if you'd have these assignments and these experiences and this training, and you haven't screwed something up along the way, you're probably going to get promoted and off you go. You might have a little bit of say on how that goes, but you're inside a system that has momentum. And that momentum picks you up and carries you with it. Now, take yourself from that career out into a world that really doesn't care about you necessarily, cares no bit about your career, and now you've got to go generate that momentum. Whether you're an individual seeking to join an or a new organization, whether you're trying to um, buy a franchise, whether you want to start something new and different, try the entrepreneurial route, you have to go out and create momentum that existed all around you in the organizations from which you came. Mm. That's tough. Yeah, totally. So I was just thinking while you were saying that, you know, you were saying about, you know, it's all in well having a passion, right? But you have to be pragmatic. Is there something to be said then on really sitting down and you hinted to this on self-awareness and looking at what do you value as a person? What are my values? Like what is the thing that speaks to me, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the most uh, important exercises I went through in my career, uh, and I won't tell you the whole story because it would take entirely too long, but an early point in my career before I was being selected for my first command, I was tasked with defining my philosophy of command, basically my core values. And I, I, I actually thought about it. And um, a lot of guys do that and they write a little book. I put it on a three by five card and I came down to six words. And I thought if I can't get the clarity that I need to fit on this little card, I probably don't have the clarity I need to use them when things come up. That was over 25 years ago. And they still remain initiative, integrity, focus, foresight, commitment, and common sense. Those are my values. And it's the filter that I use when I make decisions about what actions I'm going to take moving forward. So if someone is, you know, so for example, someone is defining their values and they're looking to pivot, maybe moving into a new direction, you have to start by using your values as a springboard, as a base to look at what, you, what is actually available to you out there. Because it's totally pointless, like you were saying, you know, going at something, going into a new venture that has no connection to your values whatsoever. You know, maybe somebody decides, well, I'm going to do this next, you know, career just purely because it's going to pay better. But at the end of the day, they're going to end up hating every moment of it. The only way that they're going to be able to bring their best, you know, the best of themselves is by focusing, as we've been talking about, in doing something that is connected to what they value. And if they approach it from that perspective, right, they're going to be able to stick at it and it's going to be something that enriches their lives and doesn't take away from their life. That is one of the richest comments I've heard in a very long time. Can I try and uh, piece it out a little bit here? Absolutely, man. All, all over to you. So here's the, stuff, here's the stuff I heard you say. 
one, we got to understand our values so we don't take a job that just doesn't resonate or fit with us at all, right? So that lines up pretty well with an approach I take to career transition and job search. In the end, career transition and job search is really nothing more than a gigantic decision. It's just a decision cycle. So what decisions do you make um, that could be anything? I could say, I just need a job, so I'm going to take money. This one pays the most money, but the rest of it's going to suck. Um, or I know this is going to be a great job, but it's not going to give me the money I need. So this brings in the whole issue of what are my decision criteria and the values for me, values, priorities, whatever the word of choice is, but your personal values, the who you are, for me, needs to be one of the first criteria when you make a decision. Now, you're going to choose how well you comply with those decisions, and sometimes we choose badly. Um, but you got to have decision criteria to make a decision. Now, you tie all that together, and you got to understand what the solution, what the opportunity, rather, really is. So you take a job that you think, that eh, doesn't really fit. I know it's not where I, uh, uh, doesn't align well with my values, uh, but the pay is outstanding. By the way, I've made that bad decision in the past. So I make the pay knowing I'm going to go into a horrible circumstance. What you failed to do was make your criteria about total compensation. You made it on cash comp. You made it about money. And when you're making a career decision, you really do have to look at total compensation. That's cash comp, that's incentives, that's uh, performance money, that's benefits, that's all, social benefits, that's all that stuff. It's also quality of work, alignment with your values, how well it fits for your family, and a whole lot of other things. And if you don't understand your values, if you don't understand what the real criteria are that are important to you when you make a decision, it makes it exponentially harder to make a really good decision. So taking on what we've said up until this point, and when you're working with people that have potential stumbling blocks that are standing in their way from succeeding, especially when we talk about career and a person's own personal success, what have you seen that is the most common obstacles or roadblocks that seem to trip people up from succeeding in the end? Um, they don't know where they want to land. They don't know what it means. So what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. They might tell me what they can do. That's a start point. Like, what do you want to do? What does good look like for you? How do you define success? Not in terms of criteria, but in, do you want a job? It's just something that's it's eight to five. I don't have to think about it when I'm done. I've lived in a high pressure cooker world for a lot of years. I don't need that anymore. And that's a way to go. Or do you want a career, something that has real deep personal meaning to you, that has uh, uh, promotion potential, growth potential, a way to make an impact? A lot of people don't think about that. And then they wind up finding themselves on the wrong side of a decision. I, I find out that people sometimes aren't motivated by money. I'm here, many veterans especially, we're here for a purpose. We're here to serve. I have a mission. I have a purpose. That's one of the things that draws many folks to the military. Um, and then they come out and find out that, well, a job really, I mean, I'm, I'm kicking boxes. Okay, it pays the bills. And they're decent people. And there's really nothing wrong with the culture. But there's no value here to me personally. There's no purpose that I can see. Um, so those are some issues. And I think a lot of times um, they underestimate or misestimate, that's a word, um, the culture that they're getting into. They fail to realize that the civilian work world 
is dramatically different than the military work world in so many dimensions. So if they don't know where they want to land, they don't know what good looks like, and they don't understand the culture. And probably the bigger problem beyond all those kind of obvious ones is they're resistant to finding out. It's hard to say, I can't go where I can't go back to where I was, but I really don't want to learn anything new either. You know, I was working with a gentleman a while ago and um, I looked at his resume as part of the process. It was not through Honor Foundation. And I said, uh, he said, you know, what do you think of my resume? I said, that's great. If you want to be a cavalry scout, what do you want to do? He wrote everything for where he's been, not for where he's going. And he did that because he didn't know anything about where he was going. Biggest challenge for them. They look in the rear view mirror as opposed to the windshield. So you were saying there that, you know, there's a difference between, for example, being in the military and being in the civilian world, especially when we talk about organizational dynamics. Mm -hmm. What would you say those differences are? Um, decision making and communication are entirely different. Um, decision making, you know, there's really, um, and I am not a decision making uh, uh, doctorate or anything like that, but my limited understanding is there's really two schools of decision making. Rational decision making, I have all the facts, I have a model, there's a process by which we go, and there's irrational decision making. Not that it's invalid, it's just different. It's decision making executed in a world of um, less than uh, uh, necessary information, time, resources. In the military, oftentimes, we are all trained to make rational decisions. We use a, decisional, a rational decision-making process so we can make decisions quickly and understand the gray, the fog, and all that. Oftentimes, after 22 years in the civilian world, what I've found is there's little appreciation for the value of rational decision-making, except maybe with some finance and engineering folks. Um, and there's a little appreciation for rational decision-making, and there's a high dependence on irrational decision-making. Well, the customer wants this by when, and we're not sure we can do it, and we don't have all the people in the room, and it'll take too long to get all them around, so let's just go. Huge difference culturally in what that does to the people on the team and around the organization that are affected by that. Another, um, and this is kind of a simple difference, the lack of uniforms. Huge difference that I've seen. So think about your time in the military. You walk into a meeting, wherever that happens to be, and you're sitting around the table and you got everybody's uniform on, right? You know right away by the rank, the appurtenances, the patches, the buttons, the pins, whatever, who's who, who's likely to be playing what role, who's got the juice to make what decisions, who's going to contribute what, and other things, just by looking at them. Then you go to the civilian world and people are wearing, you know, business casual. What the hell is that? So we all kind of sit around looking kind of like this. And I go, I, I don't know why I'm here. I haven't met anybody yet because I'm new to the organization. I don't know who fits where. I don't know who's bringing what value to the discussion. I don't know where they came from. I don't know their expertise. And now we waste time trying to figure all that out instead of actually dealing with the core issue. And further, the folks that have grown up in that kind of non-uniform community doesn't bother them at all because they're going to make irrational decisions oftentimes. So you sit there going, wait a minute, can we figure out who's who? Who's contributing what? Who's got what authority? Who's going to bring what to the table? And then can we use a, a rational decision process to bring all that to bear and make a good decision? And people go, God, you're 
stuck up, you're rigid, you're, God, can you be flexible? And then all of a sudden it reinforces the biases um, and, and, and maybe not so positive preconceived notions that many civilians have about the military. How important do you think the role of emotional intelligence plays in that? Then at least, you know, coming in, if you were in the military and now you're coming into the civilian world, that, that's definitely a skill I would imagine you would need to really hone in on. Because if we're saying that we're now going from rational to irrational, getting that right is really difficult. And one way is maybe just having a clearer picture of emotional intelligence, would you say? No, absolutely. Emotional intelligence is huge. You have to understand who you are and how to operate in the world around you relative to people and relationships and emotions and all that. You know, the technical kibbles and bits that so many people bring in are important, but they're only part of the equation. If you can't um, work well and fit in with the group, add value to the group positively, um, your road is going to be tough. It's going to be very tough. You know, one of the things that's really, I've found anyway, a great asset that our military uh, veterans bring in is agility. Man, they can, they can see um, the world around them and they can, if they, know what to, if they know what they're looking at and they know what to do with it, they can shift really quick. And in the high speed business world that exists today, I'll suggest, especially in uh, publicly traded for-profit global kinds of companies, Having that agility is amazing. Now, if you can combine that agility with emotional intelligence and technical skills that are relevant and appreciated by your organization, you got a bingo. So I think also there is when we're talking about emotional intelligence, we're also suggesting just being able to be open to a conversation where you don't have to lead the outcome and also see where the other person is coming from, right? Because obviously in a military setting, there's the order structure, as you said, we know who's the boss, we know who's in charge, order comes down and you do what you need to do. But in that situation, in a more kind of civilian world, right, that we, we're talking about, that dynamic is completely different and you're gonna have to have a completely different way that you have conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you've gotta be situationally aware and you've got to understand that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You know, the ability to listen, the ability to listen, well, just take it in first. Just stop talking and take it in is huge. And then the ability to understand what landed on that gray matter in a way that makes sense in the organizational culture and context, really, really important. But if you're not listening, you're never going to get to that. So coming back to something that you said earlier, Bill, just want to kind of look at that again. We were talking about um, the importance of values, but how important do you think it is for people to go into a particular career that has a purpose, like a meaning behind it, right? So I think at least for myself, that speaks wonders because as we said, right, it's one thing to go into a situation where I'm going into this new job, for example, it may pay you know, a lot more money, but ultimately, what is the purpose? What is the bigger picture? How does it contribute to humanity as a whole? Does it make humanity better or does it uh, break it down? And I think more and more I'm seeing, especially amongst young people these days, that this idea of doing a job that is more than just the job, so to speak, that it's making a difference in people's lives, in the world at large, has become something that is very important. And going forward, I would see a shift amongst people in general, and like I said, especially I see this in young people, that 
Nobody wants to go into a job anymore just for the sake of a job, right? They want to go into it so that it has meaning, that it has purpose, that it is fundamentally changing the planet in a positive way. 100% agree. And I think there is a, a shift um, in terms of purpose relative to work. I'm not convinced that there is a heightened need for purpose but I think there is a shift in where people might be seeking to fulfill their purpose. Um, I think maybe people over time, um, maybe a few years back, back in the day, as you might say, um, were able to find purpose outside of work. For some folks, work might have been a means to an end. There are still people like that. I don't need purpose from work. I just need income because my purpose is fulfilled elsewhere. But I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's a shift, um, maybe with, especially with some of the younger folks, where they're looking for that purpose more greatly to be filled in a work setting as opposed to a broader setting. And, you know, neither's wrong or right, but it's an important shift in how work gets done. It's something that uh, recruiters, hiring managers, employers all need to figure out on the front end, what are our candidates looking for? And the folks that are operating and leading and managing day-to-day -day in the organizations need to really understand and appreciate and figure out how that impacts the culture and how work is done in their organization and then shift accordingly. And it almost is an organizational um, spin on broadly emotional intelligence. It kind of is. Yeah, absolutely. Because just as you were saying that, I was just thinking, I think the realization for a lot of younger people is, and I'm just thinking about my, my, my oldest son, who's just gone to university. He's looking to get some, some kind of part-time jobs and, and everything like that. But the realization is, is that I think that in the past, like you said, very much it was, you know, I went to my job and then whatever else I did was outside of that. But now those lines are blurred. I mean, where does, where does your job begin and your, your, just your free time start? I mean, you know, a lot of times that isn't the case. If we're thinking about the situation we're in right now, there's probably going to be more people working remotely and more people working from their home base and not going into the office every day. So even, I think even more so, more than ever before, especially as we in this COVID situation and hopefully as we come out of it, people are going to be even more focused on the job that I do has to have meaning and purpose and it has to be in alignment again with my life and what I value as a person. Because I think if that's not the case, sure, you could probably still get through it, but I think there are going to be a lot of unhappy people. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I think, um, you know, the times we see technology with COVID and all that people working remote, we're doing this from, you know, different continents uh, 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 remotely through great technology um, and it happens across all kinds of different jobs, organizations, and, and cultures. Um, I'll suggest that savvy leaders are picking up on the fact that there is a shift. And it's not just a tactical, technical shift. It's a shift in expectations. It's a shift in how, um, how work could get done. It's kind of a new world of new possibilities. And I think um, that comes with great potential, but I think it also comes with great risk. And I think employers and really job candidates and, you know, the rest of us, we all need to pay attention to not just uh, getting too hung up on what's the good, the bad, or the ugly, 
and really understand the whole picture and figure out what works for me. What are my values? How does it fit? It's almost part of that total compensation package that I've talked about before. I've talked to a number of folks that are working remotely and their lives are miserable. You know, the common joke is they're zoomed out. Um, they've lost that sense of connection. They're sick and tired of being in their beautiful home. It just, and they feel at risk because they're not connected to people. And when we're in kind of challenging times through the world, you know, um, I'll suggest that there's a fair amount of folks who really want to hang on to their values when times get tough. You know, times are tough. What do I really mean? What do I really stand for? What's really meaningful to me? And if the overall kind of feeling in the world is unsteady and fearful, um, and now all of a sudden my work world has changed dramatically, and now I'm a little more isolated, and maybe the communication is better in some ways, maybe it's not in other ways, it's all new, it's all different. Um, I think people kind of grasp for what's the key important bits for me. And if they don't understand what their values are, I, I think people can tend to kind of swim around down in the dark water deep going, uh, now what? What does this mean? At least all kinds of potential issues. So I find it interesting and it's poignant as well, where you talked about, you know, some people feeling zoomed out. And, and up until this point in our conversation, it might sound to a listener that we're really just talking about the individual and it's all about the individual needs. But this pivot into a second point that you raise that we should talk about is that, you know, while you own your own success, no one makes it alone, right? And I guess we can talk to this on multiple fronts, but let's just start by why is that important? Oh my goodness, it's important uh, in a lot of regards. Um, I, I guess maybe at its most basic, we each come with our own set of capabilities and our own set of shortcomings. Um, we can only do what we can do. You know, as I said earlier, I'll never be a fan, I'll never be Slash. I'll, I'll never be able to play guitar that well. I'll never be in the NBA. You can't tell how tall I am. I'll never be in the NBA, okay? Um, so I can only do what I can do. Um, but by working with others, I might be able to do more things than I thought I could do. I might learn of more opportunities that I just couldn't think of on my own. I might be tapped into different resources that have a tremendous amount of new potential and value that I just couldn't conceive of. I might also, if I'm alone, kind of fall into a trap where I just don't necessarily stay up all the time. It gets tough. It gets hard. I get drugged down. I get worn out. And if I have other people around me, a network, other people that I can lean on, other people to lend a hand to pull me up when I'm feeling down, and other people that I can help when they're down. Tremendous value in all that to help getting through challenging times. Uh, so I think I answered yeah, absolutely. So just as you were saying that and coming back to one of the points that we raised, we were talking about this new norm and how many people are now working remotely. What are we going to do with that, right? Because it's great that we are able to do this interview, for example, and we are on two opposite sides of the world. That's just amazing that technology can connect us in that way. But is it actually connecting? Are we really connecting? I'm just thinking about you know working alone at home it's not just that easy to get up and go and talk to somebody um, like you did in the past. 
you know, especially if you were in an office, you could just stop by and have a chat to somebody. Now you're going to have to call them up. And um, you know, how are people going to deal with that? You know, if somebody's calling them up every five seconds just to have a, a chat or to pass something by them. So I'm thinking, you know, what are we going to do with all of this? And do you have any ideas? Is this something that you've been thinking about? Well, it is. And I think the, the, the answer is going to vary by organization, uh, by team. Um, and, and I want to, I want to um, make a couple of points on this. One, I think there was a fair amount of positive receptivity about working from home because we're trying to avoid, excuse me, we're trying to avoid a pretty nasty virus, right? So people, okay, it's a safety thing. At some point, the concern about that virus uh, will subside. Either people will just get used to it, it's part of the world, or it truly will go away and you know decrease to a level that's not quite so alarming. And then organizations might start making business decisions that says, you know what? We saved a lot of money. We don't need the uh, infrastructure footprint. We can get rid of a lot of buildings and space and real estate cost for a minor increase in investment in connectivity, remote and remote work. So let's do that. My curiosity is, are people going to be as receptive to that? Because now it's not keep, help keep us safe. Now it's the company's trying to save some money. The purpose behind the action becomes different. It'll be really interesting to see how people will respond to that. I think also in the conversation, you, you commented about uh, our connections. Um, I, I think there are, there's different levels of connectivity in a network. Um, and as much as I love LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn is a fantastic resource. I think they did a, a bit of a disservice to people in job search when they call them connections. Because I'll suggest they're not connections first, they're just contacts. Uh, you know, I've been on the tube in London. I've been on subways around the world. Um, and you kind of bump into people. A lot of people sometimes, depending on the time of day and where you're at. Those are not connections. You make contact, but they're not a connection. When we see somebody on LinkedIn, you just blindly ping them and go, oh, they look interesting. Let's ping them. That might or might not be a contact. A connection is created when you do something to create a connection, some link between you and that person. Send them a quick note, send them a message, ask how you can help them find some common point of interest. And once you create the connection and deepen that connection over time, you might actually get to where you have a relationship with people, whatever the nature of that is. And there you have, like a connection, you have some manner of, of, of um common interests that add some manner of value to each party in that pairing. And then in my uh, uh, estimation, the ultimate bit of networking is when you have a handful of folks or you move somebody to a state where they're no longer just connections or you have, they're actually advocates for you. They are out there singing your song, connecting you with people and making the world more open to bring you into their piece of it. So anyway, a lot of stuff in there. So as you were saying that my brain has been firing off, I've been just thinking about a whole lot of different things. But, you know, let's say, as you noted, right, the COVID situation, we just get used to it, or hopefully it dissipates and disappears. But irrespective, I think there's going to be a new yep. norm. And one of those, of course, is companies have realized that they can cut costs, they can still get people to do their jobs, even though they're no longer in offices. So a lot of people are going to be still working from home. 
And that's going to create a new situation where people are working at home. They're not connected to the team as they had been previously. Yes, a lot of things are going to happen virtually, but it's not going to be the same. And coming out of this, I would assume companies are going to have to create a new job for a person as an advocate for people to check in on other people because how is this going to affect people's mental and emotional health being at home on their own, not connected to the team as they had been previously? And even though we've got all these great technologies that we can use, but as we've been saying, is that it's one thing connecting with a person in person versus trying to create that same connection via something like Zoom, which just doesn't have the same humanity, the human experience that really brings us together when we are in each other's presence. Yeah, it becomes a um, kind of a slippery slope. You know, at first it was really, really hard to be at home. And then you kind of got used to it and tolerated it. And then I go, you know what, there's some benefit to this. And then finally over time, maybe people go, I actually kind of like this. So, you know, maybe my priorities have shifted. Uh, maybe my focus has shifted. Maybe I now see a world of possibilities that I didn't see before when I was, you know, chained to my workstation. Um, and I don't know whether that's good or bad thing for the organization. But, you know, I think the way this has happened, organizations that did the remote um, stuff did it with and for the employees, okay? It was a big change, but it was with and for the safety of the people in the organization. When it moved from being with and for to we're doing it to you, we're saving money, and that means this is going to change for you. I'm really, uh, really curious as to how that's going to land on people. Now, I think this whole thing is going to require not just better leadership than management, but I think maybe a new kind of leadership, um, a higher level of leadership that's going to have to be, to your point about advocacy, you know, one could argue that if you're a really a good leader, you don't need a separate advocate. A really good leader does check in on and advocate for his or her people you know, to help them uh, be successful today, help them prepare for tomorrow. I do all kinds of things. Um, and that's not always the capability of people in positions of authority. You know, they're just sometimes not that great a leader. I think for those leaders that want to go that route, what they're going to probably encounter is just the inability to keep track and to have the time available to do it, right? It's one thing if I can get a group of people together and have a chat to them, but now to check on people individually and still keep on top of the role that I have and the organizational requirements, that might in itself become quite difficult. I think so. Wasn't there a book out, something about herding cats? <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, it sounds <laughs> like that, right? So, <laughs> I was thinking as we were talking just about a very small scale example. So both my sons still live in South Africa and my youngest son is 14. And he was telling me the story because they were in complete lockdown and they weren't allowed to go anywhere. And the only way that they, he could connect with his friends was through kind of what we're doing right now, right? So either through Zoom or Skype or something similar. But once the lockdown started easing and they could actually reconnect and get back together, he was saying that he was having such a huge problem, such a difficulty trying to get his friends to come out of the house and actually go out and even you know, do something like just as simple as what they'd always done before, go to the movies, for example. So his point was is that it just became almost virtually impossible to get them out of the house. 
I mean, he was so frustrated about it that he was asking everybody to go out, but everybody was making continuous excuses not to leave their home. So that's also something to consider. And if kids are struggling with that, I mean, we can assume that adults are going to have a similar kind of proposition that they're going to be facing. No, I think you're right. And, you know, the, the question um, is always, well, why? Why are people fearful to come out? Why are, maybe it's not fear. Maybe they're just, why are they resistant? Why don't they want to come out? Maybe they got really comfortable staying at home. Maybe they just realized, boy, I really am an introvert and I got a great place. I, you know, who knows? But think of the ramifications to work but society overall, I mean, historically, my, you know, perspective is we're a social being. We like to be around other people. Now we've been able or not been able to do that in a manner we're used to. And we created a new set of expectations, a new comfort level, uh, a, a new um, a new way of interacting with folks. Um, and if we have, what does that mean to how we work and how we socialize? and how things that require more than one person actually get done in the world. I think it's going to be really, really interesting to watch. So I'm thinking about myself. So I would say that naturally I am an introvert and not an extrovert. It's, you know, I've, as many, you know, introverts, when I'm around people, it's not something that energizes me. It, it, it tires me out and I have to go and take, take some me time out, you know, and just, uh, remove myself from that and recharge and then come back and, and that's mm -hmm. fine. Um, I, but my experience is, is that it can also for an introvert can be a, a slippery slope. So I'm wondering if this has something to do with it is that the, the, the less I interact with people, you know, and I'm interacting with people on a, in, in a kind of daily basis, the less I want to do it. And it becomes a self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecy. So I'm wondering that if some of the consequences here, and I think this goes beyond just labeling introvert, extrovert, I think it's beyond that is that there's something to be said when you take people away from that connection. And as you said, we are social animals and we are, all of us are designed to be social with each other. And when you take somebody out of that environment and there's no opportunity for real genuine connection and, and social interaction, there might be something to be said that, that people are going to be less likely wanting to do it. Not other than the fact that it might be related to a whole myriad of things. One of those is just the discomfort of not now not knowing how to interact with people because it takes practice, right? I mean, think about it like just, you know, just for example, again, I'm just using my sons. They're going to, they're going to hate me for this, right? <laughs> but when I'm thinking about them, like when they first started thinking about girls and talking to girls and maybe, you know, hopefully getting to the point that I could get a girlfriend, that interaction is really difficult. And I don't know what to say to a girl dad. And, you know, that, and, it, and I said, well, you know, you've got to just practice, right? You've got to just have just some chit chat and just, just take it slowly and don't have any expectations and just, you know, ask her about herself and, 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 you know, what she's doing and then she'll probably do the same. Then you just, just, just have a relaxed conversation. But there's something to be said when you're not connected with people on a daily basis, you lose that skill. And I think that's something that that's something we need to maybe just take into consideration that might be a fallout of this whole thing of being isolated in the way that we are. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, just because we want to be social doesn't mean we're necessarily good at it folks that aren't necessarily so inclined to be social, they're going to be less inclined to be social. I, huge, huge potential for a real change in how we live and work together. You know, you brought up something that kind of caused me to think of a, a, another point here is 
what are we doing with people when they make errors? It seems like, you know, people uh, maybe not, maybe uh, lose their skill at interacting, but it seems to me that people are becoming um, less forgiving, uh, more critical, um, and there's a little bit less grace in the world. And I think is, if that's truly, if I'm really seeing what's going on, I think in the context of business and career transition and all that stuff, we're going to have to really think about how that impacts people and organizations. So you take somebody, perhaps some of the folks that we deal with in the Honor Foundation, highly capable, come from a real unique culture, they're great at what they do. Now we thrust them into a new world, they're gonna make mistakes. And if in that new world, they already don't like to make mistakes, nobody really likes to make mistakes. Um, but now if in that new world, the folks that are new to them, that they're interacting with via Zoom or whatever, are unforgiving of those errors, you think they're going to reach out even more later? The resistance is, you know, you smack me once, I'm going to come back. You touch that stove and it's hot, you're not likely to touch it again. Uh, but that's exactly counter to what folks in career transition need to do. They need to be out there making the mistakes and learning from it and employing the after action reviews and being resilient and persistent enough to get past the sometimes unforgiving uh, uh, responses to, you know, just simple errors. I think you hit on something really important there, you know, just thinking about in a general sense, when we look at how people interact with each other on social media, there's a disconnect because we're not speaking to somebody face to face, which allows us the opportunity that we normally would have to understand them in a more in-depth way. It's so much easier than just to bring about the negative and be unforgiving because of that disconnect. We lose our humanity because we don't see people in the way that we normally would see them. If we're thinking about just in an office environment or in a work environment, sure, you see people's mistakes, but you also get to see the good things that they do because you're in continuous interaction with them. The other side of it, too, is that you have conversations with people. So you get to understand that, you know, maybe the reason they're showing up the way that they're showing up at the moment is because they're having real difficulties in their personal life. And this is something that we lose in this kind of electronic age where we are disconnected from each other. We only seeing certain parts of what is actually an entire story. So we don't get the fullness of the experience of each person. So I think this is another challenge that I think people are going to have to take into consideration, especially when we're talking about being more remote from each other and in the work environment and not being able to connect with each other continuously as we have got used to and working as a team. No, absolutely. You know, when people are in organizations, um, they care more if they know they're cared for. It's just, it's, it's, it's a really simple uh, concept but it's one that so many times gets um, kind of bastardized um, or, or ignored. And it's easier to do if you're sitting behind a screen, you know, miles and miles and miles away. And it's a shame. Totally. So as we come to the end here, Bill, because we've been talking for 45 minutes and that was really awesome and we covered a lot of ground, what would you want to leave the listener with? So your final words of wisdom and, and advice. You know, um, your career and your life ultimately is yours to own. Um, 
you have to understand who you are, where you come from, what you bring to the party, and how you define success before you can ever be successful. Um, I had an old boss who used to run around the organization. He'd say, are you busy or are you adding value? And I asked folks that, whether they're in career transition or at work or just hanging out. And if you answer, I'm adding value, the next question is, how do you know? What are your values? Okay, so let's understand those. Take a moment and take care of yourself because nobody cares more about your career, your transition uh, than you do. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.